Tēnā koutou, no mai, haere mai. Welcome to q and I'm Jack Tame. Today, the final days of the 2023 campaign. Then we thought we would take a bit of a breather from our election and head across the Tasman as Australia prepares for an historic referendum next weekend. Why is The Voice so contentious? You wouldn't buy a house without inspecting it and you wouldn't purchase a car without test driving it. We will look at that issue shortly, but we begin this morning with a closer look at the shifting dynamics in regional New Zealand. The 2020 election saw a huge shift in which several rural electorates, traditionally held by National, went to Labour MPs instead. And while that looks set to change back again this year, farmers face uncertainty on multiple fronts. Wayne Langford has just been appointed the President of Federated Farmers and is with us this morning. Kia ora, good morning. Morning, Jack. Six days from the election, how would you describe the political mood in the rural communities you visit? Yeah, I, I think we see some change coming back. Uh, you could say that we saw Labour come surfing in on a red wave. Uh, I think they may have fallen off those surfboards and, uh, and, and we're seeing a different coloured wave coming uh, for this election. And, and what issues do you see as being the top priority for the communities you represent? Well, I guess it's really restoring farmer confidence. How can we get the confidence back in the rural communities? How can we continue on the same direction that we're on, but but do it at a pace that our, that our farmers and our communities can keep up at? So, 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 so we want to to achieve the same goals, and we want to get to the direction of travel that we're going. But what we're doing and the pace the pace that we're going at the moment is is just just, just not attainable. So, so we need to change that and and just look at what we're doing. Okay, I want to talk about some of that change and the mm. specifics in that change in a moment. Talk to us why about why you think confidence has been dented. Yeah, great question. So we've been uh, surveying uh, farmers, you know, through Federated Farmers since two thousand and nine. Uh, at the moment, we've got the lowest farmer confidence that we've ever seen. Uh, and that's surprising to me because I went through the 2015 milk price crash and that was a pretty terrible time to be farming. Uh, so to be so low at the moment, particularly having come off you know, some pretty record prices, mm. uh, some good times in farming, uh, was, was really concerning. We, we checked other data to see it, it just wasn't negative old federated farmers as was sometimes portrayed, mm. and it's not. Uh, Rabobank survey said the same thing. Uh, so. So you know there there is real concern there that we need to and, and we need to look at what we can do to lift that confidence. Why do you think the confidence has been dented? I, I think uh, we're just missing. I wouldn't say we're missing a bit of direction, but we're missing the direction around how we're going to get there, and 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 what's uh, what's going to be in place to get there. Really. You're talking about emissions pricing there. Yeah, I think emissions fits into that. Some yeah. of the work around freshwater and and farm plans and and this sort of thing. Uh, yeah, there's when the Labor Party came into government, they gave. Um, they worked on getting some direction for the egg sector, adding value to the egg sector and whatnot. And I, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. There's some some merit in that, and we've yeah. seen exports increase. It's great. We're up to what 56 billion dollars. That's mm. a that's a heck of an achievement, right? But what we've what we've done potentially is is not uh, not portrayed that message well enough to our farmers and brought our farmers along with us. See, that is a very interesting point, and I wondered from a leadership and philosophical perspective, perhaps. What is the role of Federated Farmers and your role within Federated Farmers? Is it to represent what its members want right now or is it to lead farmers? Mm, that's a great question and one I've, I've battled with through my time in Fed. So uh, I've been with Feds now for about uh, for 10 years. I, I, I came on as a young uh, dairy chair in Golden Bay uh, and I've worked my way through the ranks up, up to where I am now. Mm. Uh, it, is, it is a challenging one 
uh, all the way through because, because like you say, you want to lead. I'm aware that I'm a, what I would call a young 40-year-old uh, dairy farm owner with a young family uh, and, and high debt and everything that comes with it, you know. And, and I'm, I'm laying now the groundwork uh, for what my legacy will be before I before I hand it over or move out of the industry, you know. So, uh, so, so I want to lead in that space, but at the same time, I'm crucially aware that I, I can lead as much as I want. But if I get to the top of that mountain and I'm all alone, mm. I've wasted my time, right? I've got to bring my farmers with me, and mm. and at the moment, that's what we're battling with: is that the farmers are just like we can't keep up, we can't keep up. You've got to slow down. We want to get there with you. We want to go with you. We see mm. where you're going, but you've got to slow down. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about some of those uh, specifics. Is it fair that farmers still don't pay for on-farm emissions? Oh, I, I, absolutely, I think it's fair, yeah. So um, uh, if you look at the work that, uh, that's gone in in this space um, and, and where we're getting to, uh, I, I think uh, we're, we're getting to a really good point. Mm. I, I see, uh, I actually used the, probably the freshwater example as one and how long that took. When you look at... Um, uh, when you look at emissions and the fact that we mm. we probably just started talking about this on farm like 2017, 2018. I mean, like really talking about it, and really talking about it as a community as well, right? Mm. Not just farming. Uh, where we've gone in the last five years to 2023, where we've now got 90% of our farmers uh, that that know their number, you know, know what their farm emissions are. We've got about 40 to 50% of those farms with a plan mm. on on what they're going to do to change that. That's a heck of a step, right? So, and and just to, just to get that far as a, as a step. The next five years, uh, I, I think we're just going to build, and that's going to expand um, extremely well. So, we're, so where we're going to get to, you know, is going to be really positive, right. and I see uh, some some pretty big changes. But yeah, but so, we're obviously not there yet. Yeah. So we're to, to compare to, to consider New Zealand's commitments at the moment, we we have committed to reducing biogenic methane emissions by between twenty four and forty seven percent by twenty fifty. How can we justify waiting from now, with all that progress you've talked about, until twenty thirty? in order to charge for on-farm emissions. Yeah, because I think the, the goal is is to decrease global emissions, right? Yeah. Like And, and decrease warming. That's what we want to do. Yeah. We've, we've seen that when we look at it through a split-gas approach, that, that the methane reductions don't need to be as high as that. That's what the, the, the scientific studies are saying. So first of all, we need to review those targets because we just don't think they're right. They're quite not quite that high. The 24 to 47? That's right. And so if we... What would be a more appropriate target? So think? we've just had a, 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 a study, you know, brought to us and, and that uh, says 15 to 27%, uh, which surprisingly was a bit higher than we thought it was going to be. So, so but, uh, but at least it gives us a direction of travel because, like I say, if you go too far, if you reach too far, the farmers just say, we can't do it. We can't get there. You've got no tools. Mm. We can't get there. And so, and so, what we're saying is, make these targets realistic. Let's let's lay out a pathway so that our farmers can get there, um, and and that's what they'll do. When you look at Jack, the, the the tools that are in the toolbox. Now, I just talked to the to the uh, to the farmer group that or mm. the farmer or primary sector group that is uh, that is looking at tools that farmers can use, and and they say, hey, we've got eight or twelve on our books at the moment that we're really getting into, but none of them are ready. None of them are ready to go, so we can't help farmers. Uh, or we don't have tools that farmers can use that are cost-effective and that will reduce emissions to the point that we want. What what tools do you think offer the greatest promise for New Zealand farmers in reducing those methane emissions? Yeah, there is a number of methane inhibitors, uh, and and a problem for us is that we're a real pasture-based system, 
you know what we'll, we've got millions of sheep across our you know our hill countries uh we've got uh, our dairy farms are, are free mm. grazing we don't have barn based systems where mm. we can just add feed in every day mm. uh, that's that's really difficult for us to do so while there is methane inhibitors out there uh, we can't actually get them into the cows mm. on a daily basis. Yeah, to, stop to eat to, grass, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right, and and that's our competitive advantage, right? So, so we've got to be careful not to lose that. Uh, I think on top of that also is the cost, right? So, uh, no doubt you'll you'll want to bring up Hawakarikanara, but but when we looked at Hawakarikanara and the potential pricing in that, it was less than the mitigation tools that that are, are being brought out. So you can't have a tool that's going to cost you more than the than than mm. the cost of the tax because because otherwise people just say, I'll pay a tax, which will go into a big pot and do nothing, right? right. It will, in fact, increase global emissions. What do you see as being the future of Hewaki Kinot? Well, the National uh, Party and, and ACT parties have, have said that, that, that they don't want any part of it, that the time is up on that. Is it, Deb? Presuming we have a national-led government, do you, do you think from Fed's perspective, is it dead? I, I think uh, it's, it's, it'll be in for a name change, really. The, the, the work's not going to change. The, the work's still got to be done. Uh, and, uh, and if I give you an example on that, uh, some of the work going through the programme office at the moment is, is creating a, a common calculator. So a calculator that, that every farm can use, right. just one single calculator. At the moment, I think we have 11 or 12. We have our processes. We have different uh, yeah. fertiliser companies and whatnot. have all got a different calculator. So you can imagine what farmers are like. They're like, one number says this, one number says that. We need one single number so we know what we're dealing with. That makes yeah. sense. Yeah, yeah. So, so you think that there is still... Uh, I mean, basically, we're going to have a name change. There is still an opportunity for government and industry to work alongside each other in order to bring those emissions down and form some sort of structure for pricing on farm emissions. We would be, we'd be absolutely silly not to be not to be working on that, and we need to keep working on that to see what it looks like. We don't yeah. know where these uh, farm emissions are going to end up. Whether um, we, we know that at the moment the direction of travel looks pretty good, mm. and if those targets are reviewed and, the, and they're at a more sensible position, uh, then we actually think that hey, there may be a pricing mechanism there, but do we actually have to use it? I hope not, because I hope that we can get there without it. What, what, what political response have you had to your desire to review those emissions? Uh, I, I think a, a pretty pretty clear and, and good one. Yeah, It needs to be done. When, when you've got the top um, climate change or emission scientists in the world saying that, hey, the, the targets that we've got are not right, uh, then, then we need them reviewed. Would, do you think a national government would support that, is my question? Uh, yes, I do, yes. Nestle has announced a 50% emissions reduction by 2030, so that's scope one, two and three emissions, which would include methane, right? Uh, Damien O'Connor put it this way, it's the single biggest customer of our single biggest company committing to halving its emissions and it represents a tectonic shift. Do you mm. agree with that? I think uh, I think what it's highlighting is that the market is out, outpacing the regulation, right? So mm. regulation should be there to set the, the minimum standards, not the, not the ambitious goals, right? The, mm. the ambitious goals will come through the marketplace, they'll come through farmers uh, wanting to do better on farm and, and trying to achieve new things and trying to create create actual, actual uh, sorry, increased actual value on farm. You know, that's that's where the where the real groundwork will come. So uh, I see the likes of our processes, we, we're seeing it in the meat industry this week, um, uh, one of our largest processes, Silverfin Farms, have, have just put out a net zero uh, beef product in, in New Zealand. Uh, no doubt, with the attention on climate change, that's just going to be flying off the shelves, right, Jack? Yeah. So, if it's if it is as important as what we're saying it is, then a net zero beef must must be a desired product. Uh, just the same with our milk. So, uh, so yeah, we're all too aware of what's coming down from our, our processes, what they're saying to us. They they are keeping us informed, and we're working towards it. What is the risk we don't move quickly enough? 
Good question. Yeah, the, the, the risk, uh, well, it, it can go two ways, right? Uh, what, what we're seeing at the moment is that if we move too much uh, and we go too quickly and we, and we do it without the science or the proper targets and behind it, that we could decimate our farming community. So the proposal that came out last October from the government, 20% reduction in sheep, in sheep and beef production, 5% in dairy. Now, 5% in dairy is bad enough. Like, like mm. that is significant. We normally have a fluctuation in New Zealand of around half to 1% a year. So 5% is huge. 20% of, of, of sheep and beef production, that destroys, that destroys our rural communities. You ask me what, what, mm. what rural communities are feeling at the moment, they are extremely concerned that they're just going to get decimated. So, so what, what's the risk on the other side of things? That, that's the risk on, on one side if we move too quickly. What about the risk of, of not moving quickly enough? Yes, so that same report said that if, if we reduce those emissions, those emissions will increase overseas. Mm. So the global emissions will increase, right? Mm. So, so what are we doing? So we, we, we've got to make sure that what we're doing is going to decrease global emissions. And that it probably actually mm. flows into that earlier question you had around leadership and what we're doing, right? So that doesn't mean, no, we do nothing. We continue to lead. We continue to push the... Mm. Uh, we we can, can, can continue to push other countries to, uh, to reduce their emissions mm. by trying to compete with us, right? But, but we can't break the back of New Zealand. We can't break rural New Zealand uh, trying to achieve these unattainable goals. Interestingly, emissions pricing wasn't at the top of the list for your recent member survey for members' concerns. That position went to finance pressures. We are, of course, in a relatively high interest rate environment, at least compared with the last few years in New Zealand. So just how much pressure is that putting on rural communities? My Fonterra milk check in, uh, in June and July was half of my interest bill. So, uh, you know, like it is, it is significant. Uh, the, the, you know, it's no different to what uh, many New Zealand families are feeling uh, with, with their homes that they've purchased. Uh, you know, recently over the last couple of years, it is significant. Uh, on top of that, we've got on-farm inflation, which is sitting around 16 17% compared to the general household inflation of about 8%, 8 right? Mm. And the problem for us, I guess, in the farming community is we look at, well, hey, is that going to come down? Is that going to change? When we look at fuel prices not changing, we look at minimum wages has gone up significantly. Those are all things that are going to keep those prices on-farm up. And so we, we, we're really struggling to see where the costs are going to come back mm. yeah, on-farm. What do you think of Groundswell? Uh, I think uh, Groundswell uh, came at a, at a time and a place in this country when uh, when farmers felt that they, they weren't getting listened to, right? And you've got, you know, I guess, f first of all, who, who is Groundswell? You know, what is Groundswell? Groundswell primarily is, is two uh, really concerned farmers uh, from, from the south uh, that, that felt like farming just wasn't getting listened to in the direction of travel uh, was, was moving too fast and too much change, right? Mm. And, and so they... They uh, they did what yeah. did, did what they thought they could do, uh, and they made some noise. Uh, I attended the the first protest, uh, and that was that was all around the, the pace of change yeah. and and the rate of change and whatnot. Uh, since then, I, I think uh, uh, they've been captured a bit by some fringe groups and some uh, and whatnot. I, I don't think they have the kind of the democratic process of, of, uh, of creating a voice that the likes of Federated Farmers have. You know, we've got 24 provinces across New Zealand. Our members feed up through that. Our National Council govern us. Mm. Uh, Groundswell have got uh, two farmers that are um, 
you know, making these decisions for themselves. And, and, and typically, uh, really, you know, uh, good on them for, for doing that, but, uh, but it's, it's typically on just a couple of issues. Yeah. Um, we've seen their drive for change lately. It's to, it's to remove the current government, right? Yeah. Federated farmers don't have that luxury of, of just campaigning on, on single yeah. issues. So it's, it's, it's a completely different beast. Uh, but I think what, the, what particularly the politicians need to note from it is, is just this lack of, a lack of being listened to. A couple of questions just to finish on, on you. You said you're a young 40. <laughs> for, for, for viewers who perhaps aren't familiar with you, can you differentiate your leadership style and, and your background in farming with that of your predecessor, Andrew Hogarth? Andrew Hoggard, yeah, well, I've I worked under Andrew, like I said, I've been in feds for 10 years and a lot of my time was spent uh, working with Andrew. Andrew, um, an incredibly hard worker, the number of emails mm. I got from Andrew at 4am in the morning, uh, the amount of reading that man did is incredible and, and no doubt he'll do some good work in the Beehive, uh, whether you, you agree with some of his positions or not. Uh, my style is, is very relationship based, uh, Very, I'm quite targeted and focused around making sure we get results right. So we talked about the emissions calculator like it is crazy that we're at this point and we don't have this emissions calculator let's get that done so that we can move the conversation forward all this noise around it you know mm. we, can't, we can't do that uh, mental health within the within the rural sector I've, I and, and others sorry from the other rural, um, from, from throughout the rural sector have come together and formulated a plan around what we're going to do with it we've presented that to government hey this is this is how we're going um, to work on mental health because it's, that too is a huge issue. In yeah, I, I, that's what I wanted to finish perhaps because you have been really public about your own challenges with depression over the years and mental health I know has been a, a huge issue for many rural communities in New Zealand. Can you just talk us through that experience and your decision to be so public about your own experiences? Yeah, it was an extremely uh, tough time for, for both me and, uh, and, and my family um, and uh, I guess uh, I, I, don't, I don't actually think I wanted, wanted to go public with it. It, it just mm. naturally happened. And, and when you saw uh, the number of people that reached out and the number of people that were battling, not not just rurally but urban, uh, and and I could note that you know just by me sharing what I was going through uh, each day, uh, that others uh, could get something out of that. Uh, that was um, that's probably what 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 has kept me going. Um, so I, 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 I blog my days now. <laughs> um, I think I'm, I'm 2000, two, yeah, 2,377 days into my journey, Jack, of, of, of coming out of this real dark place that we're in. And what I've tried to highlight is that uh, uh, mental health is not all dark and dreary. Yeah. It's not all sadness and, and tears. Uh, mental health can be smiles and, and happiness. Uh, but you will have those dark days and it's how you get through those troughs and those dark mm. patches. That's really key. Um, and and if we want to have a, a vibrant uh, rural community, if we want to lift that farmer confidence, yeah, we need to increase those numbers mm. of, uh, you know, those good days and smiles. Yeah. Thank you very much for your time, Wayne. Good luck on the job. Cheers, Jack. Wayne Lang from Federated Farmers. After the break, Australia prepares to head to the polls for its first referendum this century. We ask why the voice is so contentious. New Zealand's general election isn't the only major vote being held next weekend. Australian voters will go to the polls to vote on the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice to Parliament. If it passes, the constitutional amendment would establish an Indigenous advisory group to provide independent advice to Parliament. And although the Yes campaign was initially leading with public support, the polls have shifted. In Australia's Northern Territory, early voting has already started for the country's first referendum this century. Go! 
But while an emotive advertising campaign and endorsements from sporting stars might go some way to boosting the Yes campaign, in Australia, opposition to The Voice has been forceful. The Voice is not about whether Indigenous Australians are recognised, respected or listened to. And it's certainly not about how to improve the lives of Indigenous people. The referendum proposes a constitutional amendment. In recognition of Australia's first peoples, there shall be a body called The Voice. The Voice may make representations to Parliament and Government on all matters relating to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. And the Parliament shall have power to make laws with respect to The Voice, including its composition, function, powers and procedures. Under the change, Australia's politicians would not be mandated to act upon advice from The Voice. And while the Prime Minister is a very public supporter... The Uluru Statement from the Heart invites all Australians to walk together to a better future. The main opposition party, the Liberals, opposes the amendment. Naturally, as all Australians instinctively know, you wouldn't buy a house without inspecting it and you wouldn't purchase a car without test driving it. Yet the government wants you to vote on a voice not knowing what it is or what it can do. The approach is a reckless roll of the dice. Sadly, I think many Australians also feel they must support the voice because of misplaced guilt about Australia's history. Both the yes and no campaigns have drawn people to the streets. But if the amendment is to pass, it needs a double majority, a majority of votes and a majority of states. You know, it's been really interesting to us to watch the debate in Australia and compare it to some of the conversation and debates around Māori rights and representation here. One of the most prominent voices in the yes campaign is Thomas Mayer. That is Thomas standing right behind Anthony Albanese when the referendum was announced. Thomas is of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander descent. He and I spoke earlier this week, and I began by asking him about the purpose of The Voice. The Voice is simply about Indigenous people in Australia being heard. Um, it is a structure from which we can choose representation, uh, representation that we can hold to account. Uh, that will be, uh, you know, have uh, set terms, so there'll be accountability, um, to be able to take the solutions from our communities to the decision makers in the parliament and the government and to shape the policies and laws that are made about us. It really is that simple. It's an advisory committee. Uh, it can't force the parliament to do anything. But we understand as Indigenous people that that advice coming from representatives that uh, understand our culture and understand the, the issues because they live, live and breathe them every day, and especially coming through a referendum to enshrine it in the Constitution, meaning that the Australian people will have backed uh, this call for decision makers to listen to us, um, that is what we're trying to achieve with The Voice. Personally, how much has your Indigenous heritage factored in your identity? Yeah, I grew up in Darwin, which is in the Northern Territory on Larrakia country. Myself, I'm a Torres Strait Islander, um, and so my people are of the Torres Strait Islands. Um, and uh, I was fortunate enough to, you know, practice my culture, our traditional hunting and cooking and uh, traditional dances growing up and doing that at ceremonies and things like that. Um, and this call for a voice uh, really is informed by our culture as well as good political sense. 
Um, you know, it's a collective culture, it's a sharing culture, and we've got a lot to offer. It's not only about trying to, um, you know, change uh, the deficit in this country and create uh, equity um, and better outcomes in health and housing and employment, but also to, uh, to be able to, um, you know, speak to the parliament about uh, things about uh, important matters like uh, climate change and how we can adapt and act uh, in the crisis that is, is very much upon us. Um, how we can, um, you know, build a better society. And I think it's about time that we will recognise this culture in this country, this heritage. Um, according to science and according to our stories, we've been here for over 60,000 years. And, um, and it's, uh, it's about us catching up, actually, uh, with other like nations like yours. Thomas, Indigenous Australians make up about 3 or 4% of the total population of Australia. So can you, can you make the case for us? Why should someone who is not from an Indigenous background support The Voice? Well, it's, um, it's the right thing to do, this. Um, we have been uh, marginalised and ignored as a people for um, the entirety of colonisation. Um, yes, there has been progress, but far too little progress for Indigenous peoples that in this country have a life expectancy of close to 10 years uh, less than other Australians. And if you uh, separate that out from, uh, you know, and, and just talk about remote communities, you're talking about life expectancies of much less. Uh, you know, where uh, females have a life expectancy of around 49 years uh, and men uh, of only around 50 years. We're also proportionately the most incarcerated people on the planet. Um, where I'm from in the Northern Territory, almost all of the time, all of the children that are in youth detention are Indigenous, 100% of them. Um, that says nothing about our culture or um, a difference in our, um, in our humanity. Uh, it says everything about a systemic exclusion, uh, a political problem that Australians can fix. So, you know, we're, we're reaching out to all Australians from every background, hoping that they'll vote yes uh, on the 14th of October and, um, you know, if, uh, if people uh, have friends and family that vote in Australia, then we want them to reach out to them too because we want them to understand that this is, the world is watching Australia. It's not only about uh, domestic here, but our standing in the rest of the country. And as I said, just catching up to recognise our Indigenous culture, which other like nations have already done. You mentioned New Zealand before, and it strikes me that um, our countries have some similarities in their respective histories, but also some really significant differences. Can you maybe reflect for a moment on the place of Indigenous Australians in their homeland with that of Māori in New Zealand? Well, I've been over there to New Zealand and I've seen a stark difference in the way that uh, Indigenous culture is celebrated and, and embraced. Um, it, is a, it is a difference that I think uh, you know, we would be much stronger if we uh, similarly celebrated our culture, our Indigenous heritage here. Um, we are seeing a change though over time. Uh, certainly uh, children and, and the younger generations are getting a different education about um, just what a wonderful culture, um, you know, the Indigenous culture here is. Uh, but really it, it's um, important that we do that constitutionally as well. Uh, Australia doesn't have a treaty. Um, another difference between us and other like nations. Uh, and so, you know, there's, there's a lot of catching up to do and we will be a stronger and more united nation 
uh, when we embrace our culture uh, just like New Zealand has. Here in New Zealand we're having a, a, a national debate of sorts over the role of co-governance for Māori New Zealanders and some critics of co-governance say that it violates a one-person, one-vote principle and is therefore undemocratic. Would the voice be democratic? The voice will absolutely be democratic. Uh, at the end of the day, it's still one person, one vote when it comes to electing the parliament, and the parliament will remain supreme uh, if this is a successful referendum. The voice itself will have democratic processes. It'll be Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander representatives chosen in accordance with the wishes of, of their communities, um, which is all about um, the model uh, of the voice being something that can evolve over time and our advocacy will be to improve uh, the representative body. We've never had that opportunity. Every time we've had a representative body before, um, its issues have been highlighted and its successes certainly not celebrated and therefore, uh, and, and with that we've seen governments play political games, try to um, you know, gain a, an, an advantage in election, an election by blaming Indigenous people and demonising us. So, you know, this constitutional change is going to be vital to um, stopping that sort of, uh, you know, uh, wasted momentum towards improving things for Indigenous people in Australia. So how else would you go about articulating the main opposition argument to The Voice? Well, one of the uh, main arguments is that this will re-racialise Australia when uh, we're not talking about race in this referendum, we're talking about a change that recognises Indigenous peoples. And Indigenous peoples can be, you know, uh, you know white-skinned and blue-eyed, as we see in Scandinavia, for example. This isn't about race. It's about recognising our um, prior existence, uh, our, our prior um, connection to this place and continuing connection and importance uh, and, and, uh, and cultural place in this country. Um, the other argument is that there's already Indigenous members of Parliament uh, and there is a, a record number of Indigenous members of Parliament but they represent political parties and their electorate that are mostly non-Indigenous and so their loyalties and their priorities are, are elsewhere um, because they're not accountable back to Indigenous peoples, uh, our communities and our, our unique challenges. Uh, we also don't know how many Indigenous people will be elected uh, the next uh, federal elections, there, there may, may be no Indigenous representatives in Parliament. Another one that they're using is a bit of a confusion tactic, uh, the no campaign, where they're trying to tell people that there's not enough detail when it's a constitutional change. Uh, the constitution in Australia is around the size of a, a, a passport. Um, it doesn't have a lot of detail, but it has high level principles. And that is what this referendum is about, the principle of recognition and listening. And so um, that argument is, is debunked as well. But it's been tough uh, with, in the social media age, uh, with a very dishonest no campaign uh, that we are contending with, to get the truth through to the people, to help cut through the noise and help them to see that they're simply saying yes or no to recognition and listening. So to be clear, the, the recommendations or the advice of The Voice would not be mandated. Do voters in Australia understand that? Well, one of the fear campaigns that the No Camp, the no camp are running is trying to convince Australians that they might have something to lose. Uh, and there's all sorts of uh, dishonest messaging going on there that they might lose their backyard or their farm. Uh, 
that they might have to pay a fee to go to the beach, you know, to Indigenous people, that they might have to pay some additional rent to Indigenous people, uh, and none of those things are true. Uh, this, um, you know, this is uh, simply an advisory committee and as you said, it's not, uh, its advice isn't mandated. There's no need for the parliament to, uh, to follow that advice. But that advice coming from the people that are most affected uh, in a transparent way through a representative body that the Australian people have said through this referendum should be listened to, uh, I think will be hard for, uh, for decision makers to completely ignore. And I think also when they ignore that advice and if things get worse and, uh, and uh, you know, there are costly failures, uh, then democracy itself uh, will have a greater chance to, to judge them appropriately. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we think that this is um, an achievable proposal and we really are working hard to help Australians see that there's, there's actually nothing to lose but everything to gain. Uh, by embracing our culture, you know, like New Zealand have with uh, Māori people, um, there is uh, there's so much to gain by acknowledging an Indigenous um, heritage and culture that's so connected to place. Some Indigenous Australians have come out against the voice they say it doesn't go far enough or that it is a distraction from things that would materially improve the, the social and economic outcomes for Indigenous Australians. What do you make of that opposition? Well, it's a minority of Indigenous people that are taking a position against this referendum for a variety of reasons. Uh, but at the end of the day, over 80% of Indigenous people uh, through multiple polls have indicated that they are supporting this. Uh, not only that, but there was a very important process, uh, well-formulated, uh, unprecedentedly well-resourced re well to bring people together uh, and well-informed. Uh, the process that led to the making of the Uluru Statement and that consensus in 2017 uh, indicates not only that there would be majority support from Indigenous people, but also that if you consider the history of our struggle, if you consider the logic and common sense of this, uh, then even if we were to run a process uh, of asking Indigenous people what they want again, uh, with ten times the resources and people involved, uh, we would reach the same outcome. The polls, if, if they're to be believed, indicate the Yes campaign is currently on track to lose next week. Why do you think the polls have shifted so much? Well, the polls have been wrong um, in the last uh, few elections, actually, in Australia. Uh, they don't always get it right, and it's a very different feeling on the ground in Australia here. I've been doing leafleting at train stations and markets and... Uh, you know, um, door knocking, we've been doing phone banking and, uh, and we think that we can still win this. Uh, we're concentrating on, on, on the work of having face-to-face -face conversations and we're asking other Australians to do the same thing. And pre-polling has started now. I'm hearing that it's pretty positive on the pre-polls. Our volunteers are there, uh, ready to answer any questions that people have as they go to vote. So we're not giving up on this. There's too much at stake. If we lose, then things remain the same. And in this country, um, you know, as I've covered, uh, the status quo is, is just not good enough. The status quo is failure. The status quo is our people dying far too young, our children having less opportunity uh, than others. Um, and it's also a continued ignorance of something that should make us stronger as a nation. So we're going to continue to, to fight every day until the 14th of October to bring people together, to help them to see the truth about this, and uh, we are confident we can win. 
finally, you have spent a lot of time in the public eye, and I know that throughout this campaign you've been the subject of personal attacks. How has your involvement affected you? Yes, it's, uh, it's, there's been a lot to, to learn over the last six years of doing this. Uh, it has um, been difficult, especially in more, more recent times, as uh, you know, we failed to get bipartisan support, so the other major party uh, is taking a, a hard stance uh, to campaign against this. And with that has come a whole lot of uh, vitriol and, uh, and terrible uh, attacks, uh, especially over social media, but not only that, in the mainstream media we've seen, um, you know, about myself personally, uh, a very racist cartoon that caused the, uh, the, the, the organisation, the, 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 um, the media to apologise um, that newspaper uh, for publishing it. Um, but uh, I am, I'm, I'm just uh, determined uh, and cannot, um, you know, waver from what the goal is here because it's not about myself. Uh, it's about, you know, the future of uh, my children and, and all Indigenous children, but also, uh, you know, the, the country, Australia, you know, uh, catching up with the rest of the world and how we treat Indigenous people uh, and, um, and closing this gap that is just such a shame. That is Thomas Mayer of the Yes campaign for The Voice in Australia. Just so you know, we approached numerous no campaigners and they all declined our interview request. After the break, if the polls are to be believed, New Zealand First is on the rise and ACT is on a bit of a slide. We will look at the dynamics likely to decide the final result in next week's election. Hokimaiti, we welcome back. This time next week, most of the ballots will be counted and we will be analysing the election results. For our final show, before the polls close, we want to consider some of the things that have made this year's campaign different. Sue Bradford is a former Green Party MP. Tim Hurdle is a former National Party senior advisor who worked as the party's campaign manager at the last election. Kia ora, kōrua. Kia ora. Our, elections are, our election campaigns a reflection of the national mood. And Sue, if so, what does the tone of this campaign tell us about New Zealand at the moment? Uh, kia ora. I think this campaign very much reflects um, the last few years of our history. Um, really going back to the mosque massacre, but then COVID, um, the anti-vax protests, and, and the, the downright um, dog whistling to racism and um, well, beneficiary bashing and so on. It all comes together into this very nasty, divisive, divisive racist campaign um, with a lot of um, edges, which I see really, it's like national mental illness of people attacking politicians in ways we haven't seen before, like physical attacks. Mm. Um, the, the sheer um, sheer nastiness of some of the things that some of the candidates are saying and the outright racism of some of these parties and leaders. It, it's really disgraceful, but it's feeding this national division and sense of anger and despair rather than trying to build a compassionate, empathetic nation, which I believe the parties of the left are trying mm. to do, but they're up against it in terms of, of some of the things that have gone wrong with mm. the national psyche. Tim, are election campaigns a reflection of the national mood? Yeah, they are. and It's a conversation that we have about what policy directions we should be taking. We're getting a little bit of the polarisation we've seen overseas. And I think um, the social media era means that we get quite a lot of an echo chamber 
as people reflect each other's views back at one another, and that can actually often make things more polarised. Yeah, as Sue mentioned, it's been marked by verbal and alleged physical attacks on politicians, mostly women. Uh, we've had candidates using terms like virus and disease, promising to bury elite Māori. Is there always this level of ugliness? Um, sometimes, yes, but I think, as I say, we're now starting to hear a lot more about it because people are being clipped and followed. We now live in a, a new cycle that is uh, instantaneous rather than... Um, filtered by the broadcast media, so it mm. does become a lot more instantaneous when people say stupid things in public meetings. Mm. If the polls are to be believed, it's always a big if, um, third parties are on track to collectively record their highest level of support in more than 20 years. Why do you think that is, sir? Um, well, people are disillusioned, obviously, with both National and Labor, depending on which part of the spectrum you're from. Of course, um, I'm rapt to see the huge growth in the Green vote, and I think the Greens have done really well with their campaign this year. They're putting out policies at a level um, I don't think I've ever seen, like in terms of detail on, on all sorts of issues, environmental and social, disability, um, welfare, you name it. Mm. They're, put, they're putting out a kind of sensible detail that many of the other parties aren't. Um, ACT and New Zealand First are, of course, appealing to their constituents and, and that general disillusionment with the focus group centre of National and Labour, people are going out to the edges. Tim, if you can put your strategist hat on, what parties do you think have run the most effective campaigns? I think um, the ACT party's been very effective until their campaign and they've got caught up um, by not having anything new to say. Um, I think um, the Labor Party were going quite well until they um, abandoned their GST policy and then got caught into a discussion and went very negative, so that's annoyed people. And I think, um, I, I can't really pick a standout, but I think probably the Greens have probably done the best so far. Right, OK. Well, why do you think third parties are recording such a high level of support relative to other recent elections? I think it's a disenchantment um, with major parties on the Labor Party, the lack of delivery, the lack of... Um, output and the lack of new ideas mean that the, the people on the left are disenchanted with things like the wealth tax being um, abandoned. And then I think on the right, the ACT Party's been very strong and its prescriptions have probably been attractive and the National Party's weakness um, has meant that it's, it's um, looked relatively attractive compared to it in previous election cycles. If the polls are to be believed, again a big if, then, then Labor is currently on track to fall a distant second to National once the, uh, once the votes are tallied next weekend. From a strategic perspective, Sue, what do you think Chris Hipkins could have done differently? Well, I think Tim's already mentioned it, like um, not being willing to do any kind of wealth tax or seriously address housing and homelessness issues in any real way, um, not having any re serious redistributive policy. Uh, that was the moment when I think Labor lost a lot of support, um, which is a pity in terms of the future, but... But he did so it. So you mean like a big tax reform package? Yeah, big, like the, the Greens came out with one, a, yeah. br a brilliant tax reform. It went beyond what I expected from the Greens. I was thrilled. And um, I'm sure that's partly why the Greens are picking up so many votes and they're taking them from Labor. Yeah. Did, did and other parts of the left. And, and um, I mean, Labor just made a huge mistake. This reliance on, on I think of it as Wellington, <laughs> white focus groups, comfortable people telling Labor what to think, and that's a huge mistake. They don't really get what's going on for people that are in desperate circumstances. They're not addressing real poverty, homelessness. They're not really getting into the climate change issues either. In an alternate universe, Tim, if Labor had gone to the election with what people might describe as a more ambitious tax reform package, do you think they would be in a stronger position right now? Um, well, they made very good reasons to go for that centrist vote because they were trying to contest the left-right spectrum and, and win more votes off national and, and be in a position to form a government. I don't know if they'd been be much stronger because they probably would have had more to be attacked on and probably 
alienate them, but they probably would have held more of the left group um, on their side of in their column rather than in the Greens or to Party Maori. Can you talk to us a little bit about the dynamics playing out at the moment between ACT and New Zealand First and their respective support bases? Yeah, well, um, ACT have been very effective this term in, in collecting the what I'd call the angry vote or people who are very disenchanted with the government um, and they've often put some very hardline policies out there. But the um, rise of New Zealand First has often been attractive uh, to some of the people who are very disenchanted and Winston is a master at uh, dog whistling to that kind of um, dynamic. Uh, and then he's had the advantage of everybody talking about him, which always drives you up in the polls. Mm. The timing is interesting, right? I mean, I mean, New Zealand First has had has been relatively low profile. Of course, being outside of Parliament generally means you are slightly more low profile than, than parties that are within Parliament over the last few years. But it's almost as though New Zealand First and Winston Peters have turned up in the last couple of months and have managed to take a large amount of support away from ACT. I think um, the... It's quite interesting that the major parties on the right have all tried the same tactic, which uh, David Seymour had a large public meeting series called The Real Change Tour. Uh, National did it with its uh, Let's get, Take the Country Back. But then Winston's turned up at the end. He's taken that track. Um, and Winston knows how to fill a room and put on a show. And he's been working the provinces. I mm. live in a regional area. And he had a very well-advertised meeting in Tauranga. And a lot of people turned up, and um, I think he's been doing that right around the country. Was it a mistake for Christopher Luxon not to rule out working with Winston Peters? Um, I think he should have done it earlier, if, if that was the position. That, that would have been my view. It sort of meant that it was so late that it became an issue, um, late in the campaign when people actually were focused on it. Mm. So is the left bloc done for, do you think, next weekend? No. <laughs> I refuse to be defeatist. I think one of the biggest things, that the big biggest problems for the left, left bloc campaign has been mm. a sense of cynicism and defeat. Um, I love the action station campaign which says get out, each of us try and get another two or three people to vote because mm. getting the vote out, the undecided vote and the people that feel defeated that's really important. We have to offer hope and say actually it's not all lost. Every single vote that goes to Te Party Māori, to the Greens, to Labour, that's going to help create a more compassionate, empathetic society. It's our only hope in the face of these divisive and racist and um, um, the prospect of what could happen with, with the kind of government Did that you, could OK, so, so let's talk about options here for, for supporters of that so-called left bloc. Do you think the Greens membership would feasibly consider any sort of support deal with National? No. <laughs> Why not? Um, because it's just the opposite of almost all Green Party policy. I do understand National, and it's been on the table in the Green Party back in my day too. Some mm. people did support such a deal. Um, that National could offer post-election a whole lot of wonderful environmental um, options. Um, but I believe now that the Green Party membership and MPs as a majority would never accept the deal that would mm. accept the the, um, the other side of National's policies in terms of um, tax cuts, of um, their policies on housing and, and the rest of it. I suppose um, the counter-argument to that is that those things are going to happen regardless, right? So, so if actors, if national forms of government with ACT and or New Zealand First, uh, those tax cuts are going to come through, those other social policies are going to happen. So the Greens could feasibly, at least on current polling, form a two-party two support deal with national, whereby they at the very least had some concessions on climate change policy. And if climate change is this existential threat that the Greens constantly tell us it is, 
surely making progress in that space is more important. This is the devil speaking. Uh, many Green parties overseas have made that mistake and gone with right-wing parties into coalitions in Europe and other places. is a huge mistake. It would destroy the Green Party in this country if it took mm. that step, and I think they know it. Tim, do you think there's any possibility of that happening? Well, I think they should think about it purely from a negotiation strategy. They've always now locked themselves in onto the left of the... They never get a chance to put the leverage like Winston will be able to after the election by mm. indicating you could go the other way. Yeah, talk to us about how you think things are going to go down from the 15th, presuming that Winston might have some involvement. Well, the last time we had numbers like this was 1996, and it took about six to eight weeks to form a government, um, and we, we never knew what was happening until Winston made up his mind. Um, so we'll see what happens um, on the day after the election, but we'll probably be waiting for the final um, special finals for the specials and the overseas vote to be counted mm. before we really know the makeup of Parliament. Is there any possibility that New Zealand First could look to support the left bloc? I think um, he's Winston. Winston um, will always wave in their direction to, to get himself. <laughs> but some even leverage. by Winston Peters' standards, it's I mean number one on their policy campaigns until this week on on their website that the, the campaigns for their 2023 policies. Um, Number one on a list of 35 policies was we will not work with Labour. Yeah, but he can also do things like he said last time when he was in Helen Clark that he'd be a minister outside of government. Mm. Um, he can always create um, new constitutional features that allow him to sit um, in a position of leverage. Mm. Would it be a stable government? Well, that, that's the $6 million question, isn't it? No. <laughs> you don't think so, Sue? <laughs> no. When Winston's the joker, he always has been, he doesn't care. He'll go where he wants to go and do what he wants to do. Mm. He's very c cunning. Yes. Well, on that mercurial <laughs> note, thank you very much for your time. Uh, we look forward to next weekend and the results that it brings. Really appreciate it. Tim Hurdle and Sue Bradford. In case you've missed them, over recent weeks, we have conducted election interviews with leaders of political parties right across the spectrum. We've collated all of those interviews so that you can watch them or, you know, re-watch them, re-watch them again, send them to your friends and family, whenever suits. Just go to the One News website or follow the link on Q&A's Facebook page. After the break, the memes, the gifs, the TikToks. We look at the most memorable and uh, disturbing social media plays in the 2023 campaign. Kia welcome back. While political candidates are out pounding the pavements, much of their battle for votes these days happens online. Some candidates have become prolific TikTokers as they and their parties inundate us with clips to grab our attention and vie for our votes. Reporter Fena Owen wraps up the 2023 social media campaign. Boys just want to have fun. Perhaps that's the messaging from this clip. The selection national is going all out on the socials. <laughs> Bouncing. Back in the saddle, Winston Peters was talking rodeo. 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 And this is not our first rodeo. After the head cowboys campaign ad, it was Shane Jones unleashed. I'm back and making Northland great again. There's a movement. A party co-leader who can sing has also been singing for votes. 
People walking, walking to the beat. Only ACT's strong team will deliver real change. The ACT party is tuning out the social media, but playing it pretty straight. From the most powerful person in the country, <laughs> what is the better type of sandwich? Bit dry. Bit dry, Jeremy. Oh, oh, Bit really? dry. So is Labour. Yeah, there's been fun with cafeteria food, but an overall earnest approach on social media, declaring a slogan is not a solution. Catchy. But a few MPs are breaking out. And South Auckland Labour MPs Anahila Kangata'a Suiswiki and Jenny Salesa have been out rapping with their crew. It's serious messaging and serious times from the Greens camp and a bit of nostalgia. I had this on cassette tape, would you believe? <laughs> Dressing up is always risky on the election trail. You can be reduced to memes or worse, media puns. Shiver me timbers, party vote national. <laughs> Meanwhile, Shane Jones had his own pirate party. Smaller parties like NZ Loyal and Freedoms and Outdoor compose their own party songs. Leighton Baker from the Leighton Baker party had a crack at dad jokes. Because there's a lot at stake. Some candidates and their supporters have turned billboard vandalism into social media opportunities. Yeah, some of my Pākehā Whanaunga may have just um, painted out some te words, which is totally fine, it's all good because they can be scary. Vandals in central Wellington replaced national candidate Scott Sharon with Ed Sharon. It may not be running, but you can still vote Sharon for Wellington Central. But it was the unchoreographed moments on the campaign trail that really got the clicks. Hey buddy, can we just, why don't we just be respectful of everyone else? I am being respectful, Mr. So Lux, we haven't seen you down in Botany at all and yeah. um, I think you're a candidate. we would like you I to... I think you're a candidate for vision, right? Things are looking up. We have less than a week left of singing, dancing, rapping candidates from election 2023, The Musical. New Zealand first, yo, it's my party. We would really like your vote because it's my party. Got to love a rap that ends with a rap. <laughs> We're back after the break. Kua mutu, that is Q&A for this week. Before we finish, just a couple of things to note. Next Sunday, instead of watching the All Blacks in their World Cup quarterfinal, why not tune in to the Q&A post-election special? Huh? We kick off at 8 o'clock for a special two-hour show. Until then, have a great week. Polls are now open. So on behalf of the Q&A team, thank you for watching. Vote. Q&A is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air.